literally the first day I walked into the control room, I felt like I was standing on the uh, the bridge of the Starship Enterprise, and yeah. it, and it and it and it kind of made sense to me because it, it brought together all my various interests. You know, it, it brought in the science, it brought in the engineering, it brought in the technical, and it brought in the musical. And I thought, oh, this is where I need to be, and uh, and and clearly I could hear well. Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is the podcast created to help you become a rock star of the recording studio. Hey, rock stars, it's your host, Lid Shaw, and welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars, bringing you into the studio to learn from recording professionals so that you can make your best record ever and be a rock star of the studio yourself. My guest today is Kevin Killen. A multi-platinum producer, engineer, and mixer, Kevin is the recipient of many Grammy Awards and has recorded some of the most important albums of the past four decades. His extensive discography includes U2, Unforgettable Fire, Peter Gabriel So, Elvis Costello Spike, The Commitments, and a long list of amazing artists like Tori Amos, Prince, Laurie Anderson, Stevie Nicks, Brian Ferry, Paula Cole, and Patti Smith. And just this year, Kevin took home a few Grammys for mixing Yo-Yo Ma and the Silk Roads Ensemble's Sing Me Home and for Best Engineered Album and Best Alternative Album for David Bowie's last record, Black Star. It was our mutual friend Roger Mutino, who was also on the podcast in episode 70, that was kind enough to introduce me to Kevin. So thank you for that, Roger. I'm thrilled to have Kevin joining us on the podcast today, and I look forward to getting into some really great studio questions Please welcome Kevin Killen to Recording Studio Rockstars. Kevin, my man, are you ready to rock? I'm ready to rock. <laughs> All right. How often do people ask you if you're ready to rock? Is that a common question for you? Uh, yeah, I think I get it that fairly, fairly often in sessions. But uh, most of the time, people often say, killing, killing, killing. They have some kind of play on my name. So <laughs> you must be killing the mix or you must be killing that recording. And like, I've heard every variation of that. And right. I just kind of laugh. You I, know, it's, I it's promise a, to add some new ones or at least regurgitate okay. some old ones on the, on the podcast. So Kevin, I've tried to keep my introduction brief. I mean, it's, it's really hard to write an introduction for you because you've done so many iconic um, records and you've just been doing this for such a long time. How could I possibly sum it all up in a paragraph? Can you fill in some of the gaps and tell us more about who you are? Um, remembering that there are people listening who don't know anything about this story yet. Tell us how you started and sort of where you are now. So I'll, I'll give the the brief synopsis. I started out as a you know a, a young uh, aspiring college student uh, in Trinity College in Dublin. I you know my my main focus when I was a teenager was music you know, soccer, football, as we call it in Europe, yeah. um, any kind of outdoor activities, but also I had a drum set and I was playing with some friends just for fun. Uh, I'm one of eight children, five boys, three girls. Wow. And my, my two eldest uh, brothers, my eldest brother, Dermot, is into Motown and uh, Burt Bacharach productions. And then my brother, Declan, who's a year younger than him, was into Led Zeppelin and the Beatles. So I grew up listening to a real wide range of music whenever I could get on the turntable and listen to stuff. And so I was always fascinated with sound. And, um, you know, just my physical appearance is that I have, you know, rather large ears. And when I was younger, um, I used to get teased about it all the time, you know, mercilessly as the way kids can be. 
And uh, at one point, my parents had pulled me aside and said, "Look, if it's a really, if it's a really painful experience for you, we'll, we'll, you know, have you have that operation, pin your ears back." And I thought, "Well, wow. no, I don't really want to do that." I mean, you know, when you're younger, your head is disproportionately larger than the rest of your body, and so, um, and also, I was very quiet when I was younger. Uh, I apparently for the first two or three years, I, I didn't want to talk. I was capable of talking, but I didn't want to talk, so I would nod my head in, in response to every answer. And there's a, there was a, uh, I think it was an Ina Blyton book that was out there called, um, called Naughty. And my father, who's also called Kevin, said, I'm going to call Kevin Jr. Naughty. So <laughs> that name <laughs> stuck with me through, through high school. But Naughty's sidekick was a, a, this character called Big Ears. So, you know, it had this duality to it that, uh, that uh, I thought was funny. But it, it, so anyway, as I was graduating out of high school, I wanted to, I thought I wanted to be a, an actual engineer, uh, you know, mechanical engineer, because my older brother is an engineer. And mm-hmm. so I, I applied to Trinity College in Dublin. Uh, and the system there is slightly different than it is here in the U.S. in that you declare your major as you apply. And, you know, it's a point system. So you do your high school exams. They call them the leaving certificate in Ireland. And I got the, I got 30 points. And because they had a high volume of applicants that year, they increased the number up to 31. So I missed it by a point. And I was a little on the young side, so I went back and repeated. And then I applied again the following year. I got the 31 points. And yet again, there was <laughs> a high number of applicants. So I missed it out because they upped it up to 32. Wow. And in that, in that system, you automatically go to your second choice. And that for me, that was natural sciences. And I was interested in the sciences uh, you know, it's a bit like know, the Grammys, right? You know, it's like you make your best record, but if there's a lot of other best records, you're out. Yeah, yeah. It's, well, it's a bit like life, you know. It's, it's true. It's true to life. So I went into Trinity, you know, full of full of kind of uh, curiosity, and I got in there. And the dean of my faculty, you know, so we were mixed in with the pre med students and also the chemistry students, uh, I guess the pharmacy students. And uh, so it was about 180 of us, 200 of us in this uh, lecture hall one day. And this was like his introduction to the, you know, to the faculty. And he said, you know, pretty deadpan, like he didn't really care whether we showed up for classes or whether we, you know, did our tutorials. The only thing that the college or his department cared about was our test scores at the end of the year. And it was such a deflating moment having struggled so many years to get into the college. You know, at least college there is not as expensive as it is in the U.S., but uh-huh. it's still a, you know, still a considerable commitment. So... I kind of left that tutorial thinking, wow, well, like, what am I doing here? Like, I aspired to do this, and now I'm not sure that this is the right fit. So I, it, it, it kind of definitely shook me, and I started looking around. And I spent two years doing that course, and in the, towards the end of my second year, I finished my second year exams. But I also started looking for an opportunity uh, for work during the summer months, and I had looked up recording studios in Dublin, and I went to a ver- you know this one little small studio, and they hired me. Um, really just essentially as an intern, but very quickly I became an assistant engineer and I never looked back and I never went back to college. And so literally the first day I walked into the control room, I felt like I was standing on the uh, the bridge of the Starship Enterprise. And, yeah. it, and, it, and, it, and it kind of made sense to me because it, it brought together all my various interests. You know, it, it brought in the science, it brought in the engineering, it brought in the technical and it brought in the musical. And I thought, oh, this is where I need to be. And, uh, and, and clearly I could hear well. So, um, <laughs> you know, so, so it just kind of suddenly it made sense. It was like that eureka moment, like, oh yeah, this is where I'm supposed to be. So <laughs> it was great. Just, so think, anyway, just think how many people would have been angry if you had pinned your ears back or they would have been angry at that doctor 
for pinning your. They probably would have. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 a, it's a wonderful uh, life affirming moment that uh, somehow the thing that teased me most growing up is became my uh, one of my best assets as a, as an adult. Well, it's interesting to hear you talk about not speaking. Uh, you know, I immediately think, oh, you were a listener initially, and. It reminds me that when I was in school, I often, you know, was the quiet one when there was a lot of talking going around and that happens now. You can hear I've got kind of a quiet voice anyway. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, th there is an element of just like spending a lot more time just kind of listening. Yeah. You know, you learn so much when you listen. You learn how to listen, you know, which is a skill in and of itself, how to listen through conversations, how to listen through a piece of music, how to follow the details and, it, you know, it, it, it's a muscle that you can exercise. And, and obviously, if you have a genetic predisposition to it, then obviously, uh, or a physical disposition for it, then it, it, it helps. But, yeah. uh, but it, is a, it is a wonderful asset for sure. And, and I would uh, inject that I created this podcast so we all get a chance finally to do all the talking. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> well, like I said, being one of eight kids... You know, you had to learn to speak up with my family, and and I was not the the shrinking violet that I'm suggesting I was as a young, you know, two or three year old. But you know, I learned you were to hold my the own. The shrieking violet. I was. Oh, I was, I was definitely. I definitely threw temper tantrums. In fact, my parents, you know, laugh many times at telling the story how at one point maybe I was around three years of age, having a complete hissy fit on the floor, and I forgot to breathe, and I just conked myself out. You know, I just like knocked myself out, and that was the last temper tantrum I had as a child. Wow. I think I've had a few as an adult, but I think it was the last one as a child. So well done. <laughs> Yeah. Well, so tell us about, um, you know, beginning in this studio and you walk in, you know, one of the first thoughts I have, and I have kind of asked this before is when you started and when I first saw a studio, it really does look like the ship of the Starship Enterprise. Do you feel like that is changing now with these computers and digital workstations and stuff? Do you think that people have some of the same opportunities to walk into a studio and quotes and, and, get a sense of awe around it or do you feel like it's disappearing or is it still there i think it's still there i think it depends on the facility i think that um yeah, there are certainly less studios around than there used to be but then i still hear of people you know uh, building new studios maybe they're smaller facilities but they still have an equal wow factor but the major difference i have noticed is that you know, it's gone from being a listening environment to a visual environment. Yeah, and I think that's you know, and, and uh, to the point we were talking about earlier, you know, listening is the key to making records. And if you're watching a record, that's engaging a different part of the brain. And and watching and listening yet again is a different skill set. So, a lot of times we've all you know, a lot of us have succumbed to. Uh, the DAW environment, and that's part of the working regime that we all have to, you know, embrace. But at the same time, we're paid to listen, and yeah. and it, it does help sometimes to be able to not see anything. So when I first walked into the studio, there were no, there was not even a computer screen in sight. It was a Helios console, customized wow. uh, with a you know discrete monitor section, but like the old Neves, and then there was a Studer A80, uh, 24 track with Dolby A. And then we had an EMT plate. We had a Lexicon Primetime, a couple of Keepex noise gates, and uh, we had a couple of uh, chambers. And then we had tape delay, and that was pretty much. And I think we, you know, within the first year, we got a harmonizer 910. But that was pretty much it. Um, if we wanted to do flanging, we did it by, you know, lining up two tape machines and putting the same material on both and offsetting wow. to create a flanging effect. Yeah. So it was very rudimentary, but yet again. 
the technology and and the quality of musicianship was at such a high standard that and the players were so adept of are uh, capable of delivering uh, a part or delivering a, an idea and executing what was written that uh, you could you could change on a dime pretty quickly and get what you wanted oh. in a very 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 quick amount of time i saw the commitments i know what you're talking about you know yeah. you could just be a working class and pick up an instrument next thing you know you're the, the you're the most badass musician on the planet <laughs> right <laughs> so uh, first off what was the name of that studio that was in dublin yeah, so it, it was initially called Lombard Sand, mm -hmm. and then subsequently changed its name to uh, Westland Sand, I believe it was called. Anyway, but I was working there for about a year and a half, maybe close to two years, and the studio had almost like three different tiers of clients. Uh, two of the owners of the studio were jingle writers, and uh, so a lot of the morning sessions were jingles for you know radio and TV, and sometimes for trailers for movie clips. And uh, so a lot of a lot of those sessions happened in the 8 a.m. or 9 a.m. to midday shift. And there, if you're if you're familiar with doing jingles, certainly of that era, it was a pretty intense schedule. You know, the musicians would show up uh, for nine o'clock, so you had to have everything ready, the room set up, all the microphones tested, almost all your gain structure set. You'd record the piece of music in 45 minutes. You know, you do a 60-second spot, maybe a two-minute spot, then a 30-second spot, and maybe even a 15 and a 10-second spot in that period of time. Then they would leave. Then you would do whatever the principal overdub was, whether it was a voiceover or a solo instrument. Then you would do quick mixes of everything, mix it down to quarter-inch, leader it all up, then make cassettes and uh, and extra copies and send the client out the door at you know in three hours. Wow. So the, that discipline taught you how to be A, prepared, be really attentive to detail and see become really quick, you know, and it, it was a great, great schooling. Yeah. Um, and then, so then the studio would, uh, would then allow typical album projects or singles projects from the, you know, noon or one o'clock slot till around 10 in the evening. And they'd be you know, pretty much for labels and for, you know, major Irish artists and sometimes English artists coming over to work on projects there. And that they'd be a little less hectic, but yet again, of a really high standard. And this is 1979, 1980. So the whole uh, punk and new wave explosion had just occurred. And so everybody wanted to be in a band and everybody wanted to make a demo tape and send it to a label and get signed and follow their dreams. So from the 11 o'clock to the 7 a.m. slot, the owners allowed us young uh, assistant engineers and junior engineers to go out and fill the room for basically 200 pounds, which would be about the equivalent of $400 plus a reel of tape. Um, and we would have that eight-hour block to try out our engineering chops. And so, you know, you had the morning sessions, which were really distinctive and intensive. And then you had the nighttime sessions where you could try out all the things you witnessed during the day. And and I got pretty good at um, figuring out how to work and how to become a, a, an engineer. I was still trying to understand the signal flow. Yeah. But, you know, I was reading manuals. You know, I, I was just asking questions. You had from learned... You had learned yeah. how not to blow up the speakers at night. <laughs> I had, yes, yeah. Well, here's the thing. So I, I, you know, I love volume as much as any person, but I like it at a certain volume. So I don't listen ridiculously loud. I listen at a reasonable level, and I can spend the whole day listening at a really quiet level, and still find you know majesty in that, and and find intrigue in that, and and uh, and be totally satisfied. And it's it's great to turn it up. Like I often feel that everything sounds great really loud. But it does it sound really great when it's really quiet, and yeah. that's 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 often the key for me. So I so I worked there 
for like close to two years. And one of my, one of the jingle writers uh, became one of my clients and I was basically just doing demos for him. So he, I did a demo with him one day. I'd also interviewed at this other studio called Wimble Lane, which at the time was the premier studio in Ireland. And this is where you two had done all the recordings up to this point. So this client, Jerry, went down to Windmill after he had worked with me at Lombard, did a session with the house engineer, Brian Masterson. And at the end of his session, he asked Brian, would he transfer what I had done in the morning time? So Brian is, takes the quarter inch reel, puts it on the tape machine, is listening down. And there's like four or five things that I had done. And he's transferring this to a cassette. And so Brian asked Jerry, like, you know, who's the engineer? I know the name, but I'm not sure why I know. And and Jerry said, oh, it's this young engineer, Kevin. Um, he seems really good. And Brian said, what's his disposition like? And Jerry said, it's great. He's really, you know, he's patient. He's attentive. He gets on well with clients. And so Brian called me the next day and said, we might have an opening down here at our studio. Would you be interested in, in coming to work here? And I, it, you know, I jumped at the opportunity um, because it was definitely an upgrade. You know, like working at Lombard, the people were great. Wimmel had definitely a better clientele. They were, mm-hmm. you know, bringing in more international clients. So, you know, one of the first sessions I got to work with um, was Graham Gould uh, from 10CC came in and produced a track for Gilbert O'Sullivan. And he brought in his engineer from Strawberry North in this young, I can't remember the uh, British engineer's name, but he was fantastic. You know, and I just was like, going, oh my God, there's a whole other level of engineering that I need to aspire towards. So, wow. You know, it, it was a real eye opener and ear opener and, uh, you know, technique as well as mic placement, as well as how to use the console, how to use mic gain, everything. It just is yeah. yet, yet again, I got a, a re-education and how to do this. And so I worked there for the best part of, I think it was close to four years at Wimble. And, you know, I'd, I'd certainly built my own client base up um, and myself and the two other junior engineers were really at this point, we were, you know, engineering quite a lot. Um, the house engineer, Brian, said to us all, look, you guys are really good. You don't need to be assisting anymore. You need to be engineering full time. You know, you can either stay here and try and bring in your own clients or, you know, if I were you guys, I'd maybe go freelance and see what happens. Mm-hmm. And so the thought of being freelance in Dublin didn't really appeal to me. Not that I didn't love living in Dublin, but I thought I'm 24, 25 years of age. Maybe I want to try somewhere else. So I had worked in the previous year, I'd worked with Jimmy Iovine and Shelly Yakis on the U2 under Blood Red Sky record, um, which they came to Dublin to, to overdub and mix on. And then also with Brian Eno and Daniel Lanois on The Unforgettable Fire. Yeah. And I just felt like perhaps New York was the place. You know, in, in, in a political context in 19, well, during the early 80s, you know, the Irish Republican Army were unfortunately setting off bombs in the British mainland. So being Irish in England wasn't necessarily the most welcoming of places, understandably. Um, yeah, really? Uh, wow. Yeah. And so I thought, well, you know, historically, Irish people have always been more welcome in the US and certainly been welcome in Europe. Um, my French was reasonable, <laughs> certainly not fluent. So I thought, hey, maybe I'll go to New York. So I had a, I had an opportunity to come to New York and I took that and that was, that was the right move. Wow. What a great yeah. story. And um, so by the time we're at this point in your story, you've already made some pretty amazing records. With short time, I'd love to just kind of jump forward right into asking you questions about some specific things. Can you talk a little bit about working with um, Daniel Lenoir and Brian Eno? And what were some things that you discovered when you were working with you two and those guys through that process? Well, initially I worked with, I worked with the band uh, as an assistant engineer on the war record because um, I had just joined with Lane and they were getting ready to do a new record. And Larry Mullen and I grew up on the same street in the suburb of Dublin, uh, just about three miles outside the city center. 
and he was aware that I was working at the studio. So he asked that I be assigned to the project. And that was a really nice gesture on his part. That's and great. I got on really well with the band. And, and I have, uh, this is an aside, but I have a piece of Larry Mullen's drum kit right behind me in the studio. Oh, you here. do? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which one? <laughs> uh, it, it was um, his drum tech sawed off part of a hi-hat stand and, and, you know, and, and to shorten it. And he just handed it to me and I use it as a guitar slide. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I worked on that. And then I also uh, worked a little bit on Under a Blood Red Sky. And then The Unforgettable Fire came and uh, the band were, were at that point um, looking to change the production team. And, the, you know, the, the story goes that Bono wanted Brian Eno. And Brian and Bono were scheduled to have a final discussion as to whether he was going to be in the project or out of the project. And as folklore has it, um, Brian, as he got on the phone call, he was he was already determined to say no. And somehow at the end of two hours or a two hour conversation, he'd agreed to say yes. Wow. So, you know, <laughs> which, uh, you know, showcases Bono's powers of persuasion. But as part of that, Brian said, well, look, if I'm going to do this, I really want to bring in an engineer that I know and trust, which is totally understandable. I was supposed to be engineering. And so what actually happened was the band had been rehearsing at Slane Castle, which is about 40 miles north of Dublin, just rehearsing. And they loved the way it sounded up there. And they felt, you know, unencumbered by the studio process. And so they thought, oh, you know, when we did this under, under a Blood Red Sky album, we used this remote recording system that was based in New York called FNL. And Randy Azradi, who's the owner of that system, you know, is really a lovely, lovely man, you know, wonderful uh, technical abilities and just like loves music and, you know, can put a studio together anywhere in the world, basically. So he brought his system over to Dublin in flight cases. I mean, this is, you know, again, this is the 1980s, uh, yeah. shipped it over in flight cases and set up a studio at the, at the castle. And uh, he actually came to Windmill the day before he went up. So he arrived in Dublin the morning of, he came into the studio. He met me at the studio. I was literally underneath the brand new SSL that we were installing. You know, I was hooking up DL connectors. And he oh, goes, hey, I'm Randy. I thought Randy. you were going to say you were sleeping under it. <laughs> no, I wish. I, no, I know. No, I don't sleep that much. And so he, um, he, uh, we met. And then I went up to the castle a couple days later. And he showed me how to use the setup. And then Brian, Danny, and I, we just got on. You know, we, we, we had a division of labor that felt natural for everybody. Dan, obviously, was engineering. And then I started to engineer more. And we stayed up in the castle for probably six weeks. And then we decamped back to Wimmer Lane. And I had some experience on the SSL and nobody else had. So I was driving that. And at a certain point towards the end of the project, we were running behind, way behind schedule. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, so the manager, Paul McGuinness, implored us to try and redouble our efforts. And, uh, and we did. But we, it meant splitting up our work days, especially for the last week and a half, where Brian would take the first shift from around 10 in the morning till 7 in the evening. And then Dan would come in and work from seven until, you know, four or five in the morning. And I was there for each and every hour of it. And, wow. and for the last five days, I actually didn't even leave the studio. And our studio manager, S. Irene, would come in and bring me fresh clothes and make sure I showered and was fed. And, you know, it was just one of those intense. But, you know, I learned, the thing I learned from Brian and Dan was, you know, there's no such thing as, you know, one type of studio. A studio can be anywhere. And, you know, which is quite ironic given where the technology has gone over the years. So we were in this, you know, less than ideal, uh, you know, technical space, but it had a great sound and it made the band feel very comfortable. Mm -hmm. uh, so they were uninhibited about delivering fantastic performances and, and, uh, and you know, they didn't feel that pressure of when the red light goes on and they, you know, artists often freeze in that environment. 
and then Dan was such a is such a, a really good intuitive engineer. He loved to experiment with sound, as did Brian. So mm-hmm. the combination of the two of them together with what the band wanted to do really opened up the palette of sounds that was available to them. And of course, somebody like Larry and somebody like uh, Edge, you know, who were kind of interested in how their instruments sound. Not to say that Adam is not, but I mean, you know, with certainly in drums and guitar, you can really do a lot more than necessary with bass. Yeah. Uh, so it, it it kind of made for really fascinating, uh, you know, exploration of these songs. But it was a typical U2 record in that, you know, they went in with some songs written and then a lot of songs which were partially written and then evolved in the studio. And that process in and of itself, as you all know, is a difficult journey for anybody, let alone somebody who's who's suited to making records. It's it's it can be a real challenge. Yeah. What were some of the ways that you would have arranged the instruments in that space and, and just some basic ideas of how you would have recorded a setup like that in a castle? So they had the band had been rehearsing this ballroom that had about three seconds of decay time, <laughs> which sounded great on the drums, but yeah. sounded absolutely rubbish on the bass on the guitar. So we actually found off the ballroom, there was this balcony. And it was weird because it was stone balcony. That when you put the Vox AC30 out there, it almost felt like it was a really dead space. And it just, it was really bizarre. I mean, it's outside, but it really sounded amazing. So we'd often put the Vox amp out there. Then when Adam's cab, we'd pull it into a little storage room that was also quite dead. So we were getting the thrust for the bass we were also getting you know some great clarity on the guitar but then for for larry's drums not on every song but on certain songs that more ambient tonality sounded really great and we would often do the thing where we'd maybe find some gobos or some kind of blanketing to tighten the immediate sound around the kit to get a more direct sound from some of the close mics but then we were using room mics which really pardon me, opened up the sound immensely. Yeah. So if you were to walk, you know, be out for a stroll on the moors, walk by this castle, you would have just heard Edge's guitar blasting yep. from the balcony yep. up there. That's yep. great. <laughs> In fact, there's a, there's, a, there's a documentary, I believe, called The Unforgettable Fire. And I think they actually have a clip of that, that very, you know, moment of somebody walking across and seeing the guitar amp on the wow. balcony. Yeah, yeah. yeah. William really Wallace cool. was out leading the charge. Well, that's very cool. So let me, let me, and I hate to jump around so much, but there just seems to be a lot of ground to cover. Let's jump to working with Peter Gabriel and doing the So record. I want to ask you right off the bat about recording his vocals and, and uh, maybe just start there. Could, can you remember sort of where were you guys when you recorded that album and, and what was your approach to recording his vocals? There was a story that Jamie asked me to, to remind you of. He said he had heard something about a broken cable, a mic cable that caused the vocals to have some sort of extra high end or something. Is there any truth to that story? Absolutely. Um, we recorded the vocals in the control room at Peter's studio at the time, which was it was in an old farmhouse called Ashcombe House that Peter was renting from a local farmer. And there was a main building of which we had use of the kitchen and the downstairs office space. And then we had bedrooms upstairs that we could have guests stay and Dan and I stayed there. And then across the croquet lawn, there was a a small rectangular building that originally had been a cow shed. The croquet lawn. I love that you were able to just drop that in there. (laughs) Yeah. And so in in the cow shed, which had been converted into studio, Peter had done minimal acoustic treatment so the main area the recording space was quite lively it had a pa in there and it had quite a big slap to it and then the control room which was separated from the live space by this little ante room which was basically the tech space uh neil perry who was peter's tech at the time 
just use that space for cleaning equipment and and correcting problems. You'd step up into the control room and it was somewhat of a quasi dead space, the control room, but it was very rudimentary, but it had an SSL 4000E series of 56 input console and two Studer machines. One was a regular Studer A80 and then the second one was an A80 body, but all the electronics had been modified by a local, you know, tech. And so those two machines were synchronized together with a, an Adam Smith synchronizer. And then there was an outboard, a bunch of outboard gear from keyboards, Profit, uh, Profit 5, CP70, an emulator, a Fairlight, uh, numerous guitars and basses and amps and stuff like that. And, Kevin, you know, could I ask you this? Just for those who might not understand what it means to have two machines synced, why would you have two machines and what, what did that mean to your production process? You know, what did that give you guys? Well, normally what it would give is it gives you more tracks available. So a, a typical 24 track, you would have 24 tracks in which to put, you know, musical parts. Um, but if you sync, synchronize two tape machines together, that increases the track count to 48. However, with that synchronization, you have to, you know, give up two tracks, usually track 24 on each machine to print time code. And then you really can't use track 23 because there's bleed between the tracks. So you can't put any audio on 23. So you get 46 tracks of which to put all your audio and production on. Mm. So it increases the track count, essentially. And it uses this uh, 24-hour clock called time code as a reference to tie the two machines together. And most, in most instances, it would be fine. However, in Peter's instance, they installed the synchronizer the day before the band actually tracked. Oh, lovely. <laughs> and so there was a slight problem with the two tape machines. And I won't go into the details of that because it's too involved. But suffice to say, when I got involved in the project about six weeks later, they had multiple performances for each song spread across multiple reels that if you started at the same spot, you know, digressed apart and diverted apart from 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 bar one to the end of the song. Wow. And so we had to figure out a way to pull all those musical performances back in and collate them and put them back on one reel of tape. So at one point, I convinced everybody that we should put everything on a 32-track digital machine, the Mitsubishi, so that we would actually have one unified master. But to go back to Peter's vocal, so Peter liked to sing in the control room, and we did, we pretty much did every overdub in the control room at Ashcombe because it was just convenient and it was immediate, and we kind of liked to have a combination of a little bit of volume in the speakers and then headphones so that everybody could feel comfortable and I think in general, you know, for a lot of singers, it's easier for them to sing uh, more consistently uh, in pitch when they can hear themselves naturally. And headphones have a way of divorcing themselves from that reality. So Peter had told Dan and I that he had used a 57 up to that point for all his vocals wow. on prior records. And we and we both were a little skeptical. So we did a we did a we did a blindfold test and Peter was game. So we set up six or seven microphones, all blindfolded. Sorry, he was blindfolded, and we put a pop screen in front of all uh, all the microphones, and so Peter couldn't touch the grill. He just had to get close, and uh, he had to decide which microphone he liked. And we, I made sure all the gain was the same, and so you know, in his headphones, it would be identical. So he's blindfolded. He's doing he's doing this test, and he arrives at this one microphone, and he says, "I really like the way this sounds." And it turned out to be the U forty seven, a valve U forty seven, and it it really did sound great in his voice. And Peter does have that natural kind of slightly elevated mid-range and beautiful air around his voice. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a, there's a beautiful harmonic to his his singing voice. And uh, and so we, um, he took the blindfold off and it was the 47. And so we decided, okay, let's use this. And I, I was taking out all the other microphones, I put them away and I 
I thought there's something funny about this 47. I thought it didn't quite have the usual response I would expect from a 47, like a little more thickness in it. So I was disconnecting the cable. And as I was disconnecting the cable, I noticed there was like, it looked like there was a tear on the cable. So I had the tech Neil take a look at it. And he comes back about 15 minutes later. He goes, oh yeah, the shield had popped off the this cable. I just reattached it. So we plugged it back in. Peter started stepped up to the microphone to start to sing. And it had a different response. Like it was a more typical 47 response, yeah. a slight fuller sound. So we had Neil come back in and we were like, well, we liked the way it sounded before. Is there a technical reason why we couldn't do that? And he was kind of quizzical for a moment. And then he came back and said, well, he said, technically, there's no reason why we can't. But, you know, let me let me think about this for a second. So we took a patch cord and he lifted the shield off the patch cord. And so what we did was we took the microphone obviously ran it through the mic pre on the SSL. And then we put it into the patch bay, the regular the regular uh, U47 sound. We took a patch cord out of that mult and plugged it into a fader. That would be the regular response. And then we took an unshielded patch cord and plugged it into a secondary fader. So now we had, on one fader, we had the 47. That was the regular response. And then on another fader, we had the slightly, you know, airier response. And that was our EQ. <laughs> so, wow. You know, the combination of the two. And it wasn't like... It, you know, the, it wasn't. You, know, you would think there'd be some weird phase issues, but if they were, if there were, they were not unmusical, and it just made it sound like this wonderful, beautiful sound. Well, that's cool. So that that became our vocal chain for the thing, and we ran it through. It, it was like an LA2A style compressor, but it was an actually Decca compressor that Peter had purchased from EMI years and years ago. A nice tube compressor that had a nice attack and release, and uh, yeah, that became the vocal sound. That's great. That's great. And so that's what we would have heard on Sledgehammer, for example? That, that would have been on all the vocals. Um, so yeah. That's great. Yeah. So I wanted to also jump back. You had talked about listening and how there's a visual component, and sometimes you need to not have the visual component. When I was going back and listening to your discography, I think I ended up on YouTube and heard a version of Sledgehammer. And of course, it's got that iconic video with the train going around his head and all this stuff. And same thing, I realized, I was like, I had to close my eyes so I could just really focus on the music and what you had done, you know, right. because the video was so, <laughs> it was so intense. And I remember when that video came out, it was you know, really groundbreaking for me as a kid. I think it was groundbreaking for everybody, including yeah. the director. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. Indeed. Well, um, okay, so let's see, I've, I've got more questions here. Um, staying on the vocals topic for a sec, um, let's jump back to the castle or, or into the studio with you too. Talk about recording vocals with Bono. What were some of the things that really um, seemed to matter for capturing his vocal performance? I think for a lot of singers, including Bono, I think once they have confidence in the lyrics, then usually the performance comes quite quickly. And for Bono in particular, there's a certain arc to the evolution of lyrics. And so probably during that record and prior records, lyrics often came last. And so that can allow for reflection in terms of you know what the band is doing but it also can create a slight disconnect because you're at a certain point you can't put the final musical touches until you really know where the vocal is going to sit and what the intent of the lyric is so you know i think there's a lot of experimentation in terms of what he would try and do and you know brian ferry is often is quite similar and and so is peter but you know once they came in with a a lyric that they believed in performances that in and of themselves were very quick you know, usually two or three passes, mm -hmm. maybe a, maybe a fourth pass to grab something. 
you know, but we're punching in on the tape machine. We're not, we're not using multiple tracks. We're maybe have two tracks and we're punching in various sections to make sure that we got a great vocal take. Interesting. And yeah, so it's not like that, you know, it's not like you're doing playlists because we didn't have, like the Unforgettable Fire was recorded on 24 track. So, you know, the band covered maybe 16 or 17 or 18 of those tracks just from the outset. And then putting a couple of tracks available for vocals, you really had to manage it's like moving chess pieces around a piece of tape and making sure that you had not only a place to bounce to, but also, you know, adjacent tracks or non-adjacent tracks to uh, to capture the vocal. So, and of course, once you go into record, you're erasing what was there prior. Yeah. So, you know, it's, you can't go back and have buyer's remorse. It's done. It's over. <laughs> <laughs> and back then there was no Pro Tools. So the, nope. the even the idea of playlisting just wasn't invading your process. What do you think it would have been like if, if you had made that record today or if you had had Pro Tools while you were working on that record? I assume you would have used it. It would have been the, the format. Or do you think you might have still used tape? How would you like to comment on that? I think they would have used Pro Tools at this point. And I think I know that they have been using Pro Tools over the last number of albums because um, I still have friends in, in that camp. So, yeah, I think they would they, they've always they've always adapted technology to suit their purposes as well as as, as most artists have. Yeah. And I think that, you know, there's nothing wrong with Pro Tools. The only, I think the biggest trap with Pro Tools or any doll environment is because you're looking at things and because you don't really, really have to commit to anything, a lot of the important decisions often get put off until, you know, it's too late. And yeah. so therefore you end up having lots of various possibilities in, a, in an arrangement. And so... When you get to the mix stage, it's often like, well, we can go this direction or we can go a complete tangential direction. And I know that's true with any piece of music because certainly the whole remix culture came about from that idea of here's a recording, let's completely warp it and yeah. turn it into something completely different. But when you're really trying to follow the arc of something and, and get the best recording uh, of what that original intent was... I think it makes sense to commit to a sound and commit to an environment and commit to a presentation. And maybe you, you know, when you get to the mix, you're only leaving one or two things to be decided. Like, okay, do I have a little bit more bass or do I have, you know, a little more drums? But it's not like, do I like this drum part? You know, do I, right, right. You know, oh, I have this other loop that I can fly in. You know, let's chop it all up now. And it's like, then all of a sudden you're into a whole different thing. So, I think that uh, it, it, it alters the way people perceive the necessary intensity that is required to make a record in a defined period of time. Yeah. And it, it allows it to go on forever. And I don't think necessarily going on forever is a good thing for any project because, you know, really, if you're good at your job and everybody has really applied themselves appropriately and they've brought the, the most musicality to bear on the project, by the time you get to the, you know, supposed end of the project you've probably gotten 98 99 percent of what you all originally intended to get and maybe you've even surpassed that but then you could spend months trying to get that other one percent and in that process you can lose so much people forget it's a, a death by a thousand moves right every little move changes the balance so at a certain point people are looking for perfection but people don't play music like it's perfection, they play it because it's emotional and they're responding to the other conversations that's occurring with the other musicians around them. And that's, each time they do it, it's a different conversation. You know, and it's just a question, which conversation did you like? Somehow, <laughs> somehow it all sounds so biblical, you know? <laughs> Some, it is. <laughs> it's the human condition, right? You know, this uh, trying, yeah. to, trying to achieve perfection and then losing something, trying to gain that last final percent. 
Right, right, and I and and I think it's that's the thing with 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 the Pro Tools environment or any DAW environment is you can fall prey to that. Oh, if we just change this one thing, but of course it's it's cause and effect. Mm-hmm. And every time you change the focus on one particular aspect of the mix, you're bringing focus to bear on something else that maybe you never intended to. But you're so focused on point A that point B only reveals itself six weeks later in a different environment. You're like, oh my god, what was I thinking? Right, and and then you you feel like you made a mistake and uh, yeah. When in fact you should just leave point B alone at that point, six months later. Yeah, probably. Or you should have left point A alone. (laughs) Um, You know, for me, an experience of listening to you two and, and Bono's vocals going, you know, sort of more now going back a, a decade or two to listen to those, an early record was to realize that the notes don't always necessarily hit the pitch perfectly here or there, Mm -hmm. but there's this intensive emotion that is what makes the whole thing work and and what makes his voice so compelling. And I I see that as a perfect opportunity to, um, when you're in the studio and you're doing playlists and you're trying to get things perfect, my ear gravitates towards being able to identify a pitch more quickly than being able to identify an emotion. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. maybe that's one of the ways that stuff gets lost is just because we can focus on this detail, but we miss the, you know, the emotive bigger picture in the process. And I, and I think especially for a band like you two, and I think it's true of a lot of artists when, but especially true of them, when you go see them play live, I mean, they're the first band to admit they're not the most, you know, certainly when they when they began and they were beginning to find their feet, they weren't the most technically gifted players. I mean, they were good players and a really strong unit together. But when you saw them perform in, in an arena or in a small club, when they were on and they were giving a compelling performance, it was like a religious experience. And even if you knew the material, I would often stand in the, in, in the venue and literally every hair on my body would stand up and because his voice was so believable and it drew you in and you knew it was real. And it wasn't this, you know, there was an authenticity to his performance, even if he didn't quite hit every note. But I have to say his pitch is really excellent. And, uh, but there's, there's a quality in his voice when he's sometimes struggling to get a lyric out. Maybe he's a little bit hoarse on the night and right. maybe even hoarse in the studio. And the, there's that thing you realize, here's somebody just giving their all. Right. They're totally, totally immersed in this piece of music and they're bringing you in and you're leaning into that piece of music. Whereas now I hear a lot of music um, and it's pitch perfect and it's, you know, it's timed correctly and it doesn't feel as interesting to me. You know, it it just, it's like, it's, it's almost like wallpaper. There's this veneer on front of it and it's all perfect, but you know, where's the soul? And I know that that's a very ephemeral thing, but a lot of people, there's a reason why we often go back and listen to the records from earlier decades and go, listen to that. Like, that's really special, but it's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but but it was real, and yeah. and it's all. And I think making records is about capturing a moment in time, and that's what you strive to do: aspire to capture that moment. And what was the intent? And did you capture that moment? And did you surpass the moment? And if you did all of those things, then that's the record, and it and it, and it is an audio snapshot of that little you know opportunity and execution of that opportunity. And then you know, and and it, even inherent with all its flaws. Everything else thereafter, when you try and perfect it, it, it kind of loses loses its its uh, emotional draw. I, I agree with you 100%. And it was something that I sort of discovered learning how to use Melodyne and learning how to tune vocals. I would have a performance of a, of a vocal that hit me a certain way. And sometimes when I would go in and tune it and try and, you know, make it sound like pop radio or something, I'd come back and listen and it, and it seemed to be missing the emotion. Mm-hmm. And, and it occurred to me that 
part of the emotion is hearing the human struggle of of going for something, which means right. you, you you hear the beginning not quite there, and then you arrive and you you just touch the the pitch of the note, and when something is um, tuned, it it goes there effortlessly, straight to the note, and then comes goes to the ne- next note, and it sounds a little bit effortless. And I think that's what I noticed is it's just like it's it's not trying as hard. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, well, it, and it's what we're all used to hearing now. If you listen, if you turn on any radio station and listen to you know song after song, everything is almost pitch perfect and yeah. and timing perfect. And yet again, I can't listen to that anymore because it feels it feels like it's just wallpaper. And uh, and I'm sure that's unfair to a lot of artists out there who are doing really, really wonderful work. But I think that the we've forgotten how to listen. And it goes back to the earlier point: listening to something that has this emotional content. And I did a project with an artist in in the UK recently, where uh, Ethan Johns was producing, and we did our real world, which is Peter's new studio. And we set up, we set the band up in a circle in the live room. And in fact, the control room was actually in the live room as well. And we just set up little gobos, and we would wear headphones when um, when the artist was performing, and we captured something that was really magical. And it was a little bit of a stretch for the artist because he had been used to making records using, you know, sequencers and the dull environment. And he loved it. I mean, he really felt liberated from this. He felt like, you know, I don't have to pay strict attention to time or to pitch. And yet again, it wasn't perfect, but it had this beautiful emotion to it. And it really captured him as an artist because if you go see him live, this is exactly how he sounds. And, uh, you know, the question then for the label was, do they release it? as is, or do they tweak it to a point where, <laughs> you know, it's perfect. <laughs> and that debate is still going on. So, you know, yeah. it, it, it's it's a struggle. And of course, like, if you follow that naturally, you go see artists now and, and, and the technology is so available that a lot of artists are using their own reinforcement and playback systems to kind of bolster their live performance. Yeah. And, you know, I want I want to go see an artist, and I want to see the humanity on stage. I mean, yeah. that's what makes that's what makes somebody like Springsteen so compelling. I didn't get it until I went to see him live. But when you go see him live, you go, "Oh my God, this guy is leaving it all on the stage." Three hours, three plus hours every night, every song. He's just he believes in every word and every stroke of music that's that he plays. So great. And, you know, yeah, and it's so fantastic to see. And I know a lot of artists do it as well, but I, I, I don't want to go see choreography. You know, I'm not right. interested in choreography. I'm interested in people putting the emotion out. That's what I respond to. And everybody else has a different perspective. And I totally respect that. Yeah. I, music is communication between human beings. You know? Yes. Yeah. And, and it's the universal language. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So you were just talking about uh, being in a circle and I think you began to talk about headphones. Uh, so... Uh, let's talk about Yo-Yo Ma for a moment. And, you know, it's clearly some very technically proficient musicians. What was it like to record with those guys? How do you approach monitoring? Do you give people headphones? Do people not have headphones? How do you arrange a band like that and capture such an amazing sound? And tell us about the reverb, because there's some beautiful reverb on that mix. <laughs> so with, with Yo-Yo, I got brought into that project um, literally like about two weeks before they actually started the first recording phase of it. My friend Jody Elf was was the engineer on the project, and uh, he ha- he has worked with Silk Road over many years, and and there was a discussion internally within the band and within the label about how to present this band and this artist in a slightly different, you know, slightly more, I wouldn't say elegant way, but maybe in a slightly more pop way. And Jody was feeling that perhaps he needed some help in that regard, so he asked me if I would come in and 
help with the engineering and then obviously take over as you know co-producer and also as the mixer of note and so the initial tracking of the first eight songs i was not available for because i was in the i was in holland working on another project but when i came back i started to work on those songs and i we edited and mixed and um, but when we got to the second phase of recording we pretty much went back into MSR, which is a studio here in Manhattan, sadly, since closed. Mm. Um, we went there for five days in September of 2015. And it was, you know, it's a pretty large room. So we set everybody up. There's lots of musicians. So it's like at, at any given moment, there could be up to 20 players in the ensemble. So, you know, the notion of trying to get separation is a ridiculous notion. So you basically just arrange the instruments around the room, kind of like-minded timbres so that you could you know the bleed between each instrument would be you know relevant and musical um and then and then we did set up headphones and we basically set up a basic mix and then they had their own additional cues which they could add or subtract how they wanted to hear some of the players chose not to use headphones at all and they were just listening in the room because the natural balance within the room was so great in and of themselves and then some chose to only immerse themselves in the headphones and it was really a taste issue for them and my job was initially to go out and capture really what was going on in the room. It was very much like a capture recording process yeah. because you really, you, you couldn't do anything else. Like you couldn't turn it into something that it didn't want to be. And, you know, with all these very odd instruments from China and Syria yeah. and, you know, Africa, you know, you really had to be respectful of how those tonalities presented themselves. Now, what about mic choice? Did you find yourself uh, choosing different mics for different instruments? Did you... Um, did you know ahead of time, oh, I think this mic will work for that double reed instrument? Or would you have to try and experiment a little bit? I think we had, you know, from Jody's experience in the past of recording the ensemble, we had a pretty good idea of what would work, especially in that space. And we tended to go for things that had a slightly more distinct pattern, like maybe a cardio, hypercardioid pattern so that we could really kind of get close in on certain instruments and really get the the kind of thrust of that particular instrument. But we did experiment a little bit. So there was a, a little bit of acknowledgement in advance of what could work uh, based on experience. And then there was also some little ex- experimentation based on what was actually happening in the room on a given piece of music. And then, you know, with Yo-Yo, he's, you know, he, obviously he's clearly an amazing musician. Yeah. But the thing that the thing that's very disarming about him is he's incredibly funny. I mean, right. he's incredibly he's an incredibly bright man. And if you've ever seen him interviewed, he, he really thinks about things in such a beautiful and, and magnificent way. And he's very well read and he's he's got a, a broad education that touches across every subject. And he's very knowledgeable in, in almost everything. But he's just a great human being. But he has this wonderful ability to make you feel completely at ease in his presence. But also, he's he's disarmingly funny, and so he would you know he would catch you unawares, and he would just he would crack me up many many times in the <laughs> session. But then when it came to mixing, Johnny Gandelsman, who's the first violin player and uh, also the co-producer on the record, he wanted to lean on me to basically establish like, okay, here's our basic sound. What can we do with this sound to make it present as maybe something slightly more contemporary and so that was that was always the discussion what can we do so in terms of the reverb choices uh, i was mixing in the box and i i really love the ultraver plugin yeah um, i really love the eventide black hole and i love the uad the rmx 16 and the emt plate um, and so i used a liberal amount of those plus the 224 uh, the uad 224 mm-hmm. that i have a couple of presets in and so, you know, it was a combination of all those. And and a lot of times I will use, I'll always have a couple of reverbs that are incredibly long. 
you know, maybe 16 seconds or maybe 30 seconds long. And if you just add a touch of those into certain things, or sometimes you drop something into that just for a nanosecond or a millisecond, mm-hmm. it can it could create a, a little aura around an instrument or a little highlight that adds to this lovely dimension that you can't quite you can't quite identify what it is, but it just makes you listen deeper into the track. Yeah. And uh, and I kind of listen. I I kind of think of mixes as being a three dimensional space through two static speakers and I, i'm always trying to create that illusion that you know the music is surrounding you even though that's physically impossible in stereo mm-hmm. um but like trying to allow the brain to be tricked into the notion that you're really hearing a surround mix in right, stereo right you know well, i like your idea of leaning into it i mean you made my computer speakers sound awfully good when i was reviewing these last night <laughs> in the house um yeah lovely reverbs um do you uh, actually this is a an aside but i i just met michael carnes yesterday who um developed all the lexicon reverbs and he has this right. new uh, exponential audio and he's developing some beautiful reverbs nimbus and r4 and Kevin, also, I wanted to ask you about working with Laurie Anderson, because I've always been a huge fan of her music since Oh, Superman and, you know, saying, what's mm-hmm. this? Talk about working with her as an artist and how you were involved in that. And what were some of the things that are really important to making her record sound the way it needed to sound? Well, what's great about working with Laurie is because she's really into experimenting with every aspect of the recording process. So from sound to arrangements to perceptions about, you know, what people want to hear and and present itself. So uh, originally, uh, Laurie was working with Brian, you know, and Brian was here in New York and they were working with another local engineer. And I'm forgetting who it is, but I know Joe Furler it was. He's a dear friend. Apologies to Joe for forgetting. And um, and for whatever reason, there was something in the schedule that either he was not available. And so Brian called me up and asked me if I would just substitute for a week. And so it was right around Christmas time, prior to Christmas. And so Brian and I and Laurie and a few of the musicians, Greg Cohn and Joey Barron, we convened at her studio, which is essentially was in her loft down on Canal Street. Mm-hmm. And uh, we just worked, you know, for five or six days. And it was a really fun experience and everything was great. And then after Christmas, in the beginning of the new year, Laurie called me up and asked if I would come back down. That Brian wasn't available, but could I come back down and just help sort out through some things? And for whatever reason, for the next three or four months, I ended up going down there almost every day. And we worked on this material for a really long time and we developed new songs. And then Brian came back in towards the end of that process. uh, And he was listening to what we had done and making suggestions. And so I mixed for a week here in New York on my own at Skyline Studios where, you know, where I met Roger. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then Roger Mutno, and then we went to the UK where we worked at um, at a studio in London, and we worked there for about eight or nine days with Brian, and we experimented with mixes and remixed stuff and tried a whole bunch of new things, and then came back and I mixed again on my own, and that's kind of how the record came together. But what, what was great about Laurie is the fact that she was open to any idea, any sound, any possibility. So it was there was always this wonderful idea. You went in every day and you thought. What are we gonna What are we gonna make a sound of today? And you'd pick up something that was sitting around, and you go, hmm, "That's an interesting sound. I wonder if I put that through the harmonizer, what it would do." And I wonder if I put it through this effects pedal. So she was always looking for like a sonic palette to be inspired uh, to help her kind of write lyrics and set the right emotional aspect of the record. And so, but there was a lot of experimentation. So on one hand, it was really great from an audio point of view because you could just try whatever the hell you wanted. Right. 
on the other hand, it, it, it was a, another one of those records which could have just gone on forever. Um, right. That's what I was going to ask is when you go through that process, which is a lot of fun as an engineer, when do you have the sense that, oh, I've just captured the moment? Because what's the moment? Yeah. <laughs> Nobody ever knows. <laughs> or everybody has a different perception of what that moment is. Yeah. 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 Well, I, and yet again, you know, this was, you know, I'd worked with Peter. I'd done a record with Brian Ferry, very similar kind of thing with Laurie and a couple of other artists who either didn't have the uh, restriction of, you know, budget to to worry about it because they had basically had their own studios. Mm-hmm. So, the, you, know, the, you know, there wasn't a label going, oh, you, you know, we're not going to pay for studio time anymore. You have to get done. So that that impediment was was not possible and not present in that in those situations. So, you know, Laurie could get up every day and go to the studio. It was in her house, basically. And uh, and so I was, you know, yet again, I was very comfortable working in non-traditional studio environments. And I was also very comfortable with these elongated projects. But at a certain point, you do have to kind of focus and try and corral the thing into a definitive end. And you have to kind of impose a little bit of a schedule on it because otherwise it will keep going forever. And maybe you do go past that moment where you where you realize that was the moment and the record gets worse. And mm-hmm. you always want to avoid that. So, it, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit of an instinctual belief and also, you know, a tacit agreement between the artist and yourself and everybody involved, especially if you have some outside counsel who comes in and goes, oh, this is so much better than where you were three weeks ago. I really see where you're going. And that was kind of the role that Brian was playing. He was, you know, listening and observing and making suggestions and and helping guide us through the the kind of day-to-day process, but having a much broader overview of everything. And and, and the musicians associated with Laurie, like Craig Cohn and Joey Barron and Cherry Leonard, you know, all wonderful musicians who are artists in their own right, who, you know, not only brought musicality to bear, but like such a sonic imprint on the record too. So, mm-hmm. you know, at a certain point you realized this is, this is done. This is done. And, and also Laurie, you know, wanted to be done as well. And at that point, Laurie had just started dating Lou Reed. And so oh, Lou wow. was, was often around, you know, observing and passing comment and, you know, good observations. And, and, you know, he was a trusted sphere of influence in that, in that project. Wow, that's cool. You know, you talked about making records and just trying to bring your best musicianship to the, each moment of the day. And I, I suppose if you're doing that, you're really just bringing your best every day and you put a framework on it. At any point that you stop, it's going to be, it's going to be great. You know, you're going to create you something that's you great. Hope, you hope. Yeah, 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 you hope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think that and, and in those days, you know, it was a normal protocol to make cassettes at a certain point in the process. You'd run a rough mix onto a cassette and then you'd walk around town and you'd stick it in your car and you'd listen. And, yeah. and, and oftentimes you'd make notes of when a particular balance made sense and made you react in a very positive way. And, right. and oftentimes you'd go back and say, hey, that, you know, that mix from last Friday, there's something amazing about that. Can we recapture that? And hopefully you documented it. Or you know maybe there was a computer you know automation system where you were able to grab a snapshot of it at the time, but Laurie had like a Soundcraft console, so it was like all completely manual. I, I had copious notes. That was wow. one of the things I learned from Brian and Danny was write down everything and uh, you know so you notate mic presettings and chains and stuff like that and effects and so because you never know when you have to go back and re- or try and recreate the ambience of a particular part, mm-hmm. but but you might need to modify the part based on you know, a new lyric or a new arrangement or something like that. So, so it's always always good to, to know where you're going. So how do you write stuff down these days? Do you still use pen and paper or pencil and paper? Or do you, you know, resort to uh, iPhone snapshots and things like that? 
a combination of everything. Yeah, I, I still trust pen and paper. You know, technology is wonderful, but it's not infallible. Mm-hmm. And uh, pen and paper is still my preferred method. But, you know, sometimes a quick snapshot is ideal. When we were working on Blackstar at the Magic Shop, um, you know, basically I would write down all the monitor settings every day for the rough mixes. And so if I needed to come back, I could just quickly push back up those balances uh, because they were, you know, they were garnering a certain response in the room. And I think those responses are, are important to notate. And yeah. yeah, you know, you can't, you know, like certainly you have four or five great musicians out in the room and they come back in to listen to the first playback and they go, that sounds fantastic. What did you do? And you think I didn't do anything. I just set the microphones up and captured what you did. And, uh, you know, you, you're, you're, you're witnessing and you're hearing that dialogue that's occurring and uh, and you think, oh, it might be really smart of me to notate what this is because I might have to come back in two weeks' time and recreate this and I should really know what it is because uh, it's important. Yeah, well, there's something that even happens um, when you're in Pro Tools and you're just doing a Pro Tools session if you're not on a console like that, where as you do overdubs and you push other instruments in and out of the way just for the mix, you forget, but you're constantly changing those balances and that the whole relationship so there's yeah. a, lot, a lot of movement there that comes and goes. Back in the early 90s, I, I had the great honor of working with Lynn Johns, who was one of the engineers when I was growing up that I you know, sought out his work and listened to. And uh, I'd met him a number of times in Los Angeles. And at one point, he asked me if I would engineer for him on a Stevie Nicks record. And I was absolutely petrified. I thought, oh, my God, Lynn Johns? Like, <laughs> you know, why was he asking me to engineer? But you know, we hit it off really well. And, and we're still really good friends. But during that process, we were working in uh, at Oceanway, and we were working in one of these rooms that had, I think it was a Neve eighty thirty eight, and I believe it didn't have automation at the time. So often we'd come in every day and we just throw up a rough mix. And one day, Lynn and I were in there on our own, and Lynn just he said, "Watch this," and he threw up this rough mix, and it was just off a twenty four track. And I looked at the position of the faders, and it sounded really good. And he just adjusted the pan pots a little bit, and he goes, "What do you think of that balance?" And I I thought. Well, that sounds pretty good. He goes, you know what? I don't really like that balance. So let's just start again. And he pulled it back down and he threw up almost the same balance. Now you looked at the fader positions and it was like literally live. It was maybe a dB or dB and a half different. And yet how it presented itself was so radically different. Hmm. Kind of looked at each other and he went, I know this looks weird and it sounds, you know, really radically different and I can't explain it. He said, but there's something about this alchemy that works and you just have to figure it out every time. And I thought, wow. You know, there's, there's something to be said for just, you know, experimenting with balances until you find something that moves you. And because we all hear in a slightly different way, isn't that what the beauty of mixing is? Like certain people like to hear, you know, a certain amount of mid-range or a certain amount of bottom or a certain amount of top. And we all hear that slightly differently. And how we perceive uh, space around an instrument is different. So, you know, I, I love listening to Chad Blake's work. And I think, mm-hmm. oh, my God, listen to Chad's work. I mean, it's astonishingly great. Same with Roger's work, or you know, there's lots yeah. of great engineers out there, and you think I could never do that. And then I also feel like sometimes they can't do what I do. So it's, you know, you do what you do. Um, you have a particular affinity for how you want to present a piece of music, and hopefully the artists that you're working with look at the body of your work and think, yeah, I want to work with that guy because I like what he does in these records, and I want some of that in, you know, in my work. And uh, Hopefully that's what you, what you that's what you bring to the table. I'm glad you mentioned Chad Blake. So I've referred to our listeners as the rock stars. Rock stars, go listen to Colossal Head. 
one of my favorite <laughs> records ever. <laughs> Just wanted to put that out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I have a, a great question. I reached out on Facebook and asked uh, for questions um, for you. And one came in, this one came in actually from Chris James, who was, um, funny enough, uh, your competition at the Grammys. He, he was up for oh. Best Engineered Album for Hit and Run 2 for Prince. Oh, okay. Um, and he said, first off, congratulate you, Kevin, on your Grammy Award. It was well-deserved for a wonderful record. Thank you. And, and he also said, um, for some reason, I remember reading years ago when people were syncing two decks that you, Kevin, preferred to keep everything on one reel. I'd like to hear your thoughts on, on that. And I think he also wanted to hear your thoughts on delay compensation in a Pro Tools session and if it has any modern-day frustrations while working in the box. Hmm. Well, yes, I do. I do have a preference for working in one machine, and it's been it was born out of, ironically, working with Peter on so we had, um, as I alluded to earlier in the interview, the Adam Smith synchronizer and the two Studer A80s. They were mismatched technically, and it created a lot of problems. So, I just at a certain point, I felt like we were spending too much time dealing with the technical issues, and I just wanted to record. And so, I felt like the only way I could clearly do that was to be unencumbered with synchronization. And since I had already had perhaps five or six years of experience of only making records on a 24 track, and that had worked pretty well up to that point, I thought, why do I want more tracks? It's not making my life easier. So I did try one other time on another project uh, with Arif Martin and Howard Jones. Mm -hmm. And although the technology worked seamlessly, yet again, it was an inordinate amount of time spent measuring the difference between beats <laughs> using right. calipers. You know what I mean? I thought, this is not music. This is, you know, science. Yet, it's science, and, you know, which I love. I love science. But at the end of the day, I felt like this is a more of a technical thing. And, and, and also working with Dan. Dan is very mercurial and he's a wonderful producer. But, you know, when you work with Dan Lanois, it's like you have to be ready every day to record. That's the whole point of being in the studio. You've got to be ready to record. So if there's a great performance going on and a piece of technical, a technical issue, you know, arises that prevents that performance from being captured, that really makes Dan mad. And I totally get it because mm -hmm. it's like you've got the moment. You may never know when that moment's going to come back again. Mm -hmm. A different moment is going to come, but maybe that was the moment. And that's what we're always trying to capture is that moment. So I, I kind of, at that point, I was like, I tried synchronization on and off for maybe two or three years, and then I just gave up on it. And so I started using um, either just staying to 24 track or I, I, for a number of projects, if at the time they could afford it, I would rent in a Mitsubishi 32 track. That gave me the best of both worlds. It gave you, you know, a few extra tracks to work with. I did actually on a couple of projects try the Sony 48 track machine, and that was great. My friend Hugh Padgham had also told me a great way of working with that machine. And he said, look, I love working on 24 track too. He said, but what I do is... I record all my performances on tracks 25 to 48 and I use them as my record tracks. And then I bounce everything down to tracks one to 24. Um, so I always have 24 tracks to play with to record, but I have to make sure that my whole mix only exists on 24. And I thought that was a very clever approach to it. So he gave himself the opportunity to have everything on one tape machine, but he limited he limited the scope of tracks available to, for the final master and, and it forced them and the production into making decisions. And I thought... Smart man. Yeah. Very smart. Yeah. That's that's kind of where I was going when I was asking you about syncing the tape machines with Peter Gabriel was this idea of maybe using one as a scratch pad for all these musical ideas and bouncing them down to the other tape or anything like that. Right. But you know, with tape you you know, you also have the generation loss issue. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's that is a major consideration, especially on a project where 
the project is going on for a year and you're rolling tape over and over again. I mean, there's a huge degradation in terms of what it sounded like initially and what it ended up sounding like prior to mixing. You end up adding a lot more, you know, you certainly would add in more mid-range and more high-end because mm-hmm. a lot of the wear and tear had taken those that response away. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you do that, you're also bringing up the noise floor. And so it's, it's, it's that intricate balance of trying to get something that has clarity when you initially had it <laughs> on the first day of capture and then you've lost it somehow. So the advantages of working in the digital environment is that what you capture is what you get. And unless there's a complete, uh, you know, technical failure of that piece of hardware or software, then um, it's the ones and zeros are always the same. Yeah, awesome. So, yeah. I'm glad you just said technical failure of the digital world. So I, that is Chris's other half to his question. Um, talk about delay compensation. Let's talk about the technical failures of the digital world and, and Pro Tools or any DAW that you run into. What are, you, what are some considerations? You know, I like to work in the DAW environment where I feel like it is It is like a glorified tape machine. I, I tend to, my workflow is to try and use the minimum number of plugins on a project as possible. And I have a, a mixed template that I've adapted over the years that basically, you know, by, by creating subgroups and pushing, you know, like-minded instruments through f- certain subgroups, that my EQ and compression plugin number is set at eight. And that's it. So that's it across the whole mix. Doesn't matter whether it's ten tracks or 110 tracks. I try and create it so that it's it's you know I can do it in such a way that it makes sense for that piece of music. If I need to go in and do a little more detail, I can on an individual track. Um, but I like to feel yet again. I I don't like creating uh, environments in my production where there's numerous amounts of tracks. I I I will layer things up, but then I'll bounce stuff down so that background vocals are on two and mm-hmm. maybe four tracks. And I, I like to impose restrictions on myself. So when I get to mix, I'm really spending the majority of my time mixing and listening mm-hmm. and not worrying about bussing and you know trying every available plugin that's out there, even though there are some incredibly great plugins. Yeah. But yet again, that's kind of losing yourself in the weeds. And I feel, yet again, it, from my way of listening i want to move relatively quickly and i want to get to a point where i feel like the mix is is captured the spirit of the recording and it's gone beyond that a little bit and it's it's really speaking in a particular way um and then if i overthink it then i lose the mix uh, and i hate getting into that situation so i try and keep it simple um i i will say that when i first started using pro tools as a mix platform uh, in the tdm environment i, I just I really couldn't get great mixes because I really didn't understand uh, what was happening with all the latency. And and I mean, I could hear it, but I was like, it was confusing to me to, and to my ear. And you don't really experience that in, in the analog domain unless you deliberately run something through a delay line or something's out of sync on the multi-track. So I have to say, you know, the, the latest iteration and certainly since delay compensations come on, it's helped and it definitely makes for a smoother presentation of the of the recording but at the same time it's doing something at the same time and the question is you know how much processing does one put on there so i think every little bit of processing is a bit like every overdub or every every additional layer you add to it it can add something but it can also take away something so you you know i, I i'm always mindful of how much processing i do when i'm mixing and i like to try and keep it you know as elegant a workflow as possible so keep the track number count down to you know 25 30 tracks if i can and you know use you know maybe about eight eight plugins and then add in some reverbs and delays 
and try and get a great mix as quickly as possible. Wonderful. Well, speaking of working quickly, thank you for um, <laughs> being patient with me on this this long interview. Rockstars, we're going to take a break now for just a second. We'll come back in for the jam session. Um, Kevin, thank you so much for being here with us. My pleasure. You can find notes to what we're talking about, links and, and uh, links to Kevin's records at the show notes, which will be at recordingstudiorockstars.com or rsrockstars.com and then just search Kevin and it'll take you right to the blog post. We'll see you guys in just a minute for the jam session. Hey everybody, it's Lid Shaw and I want to thank you so much for listening to this episode of Recording Studio Rockstars. I really appreciate you and I really appreciate your time. And as a way of saying thank you, I've created a special mix tutorial just for you, Rockstars, totally free called the Mix Master Bundle. With it, you get over two hours of detailed videos watching over my shoulder as I mix a song in my studio. Plus, I give you the free ebook that explains how I recorded the tracks, and you get downloadable multi tracks so that you can practice your mixes, including the Pro Tools session file, using nothing but stock plugins in Pro Tools, all of which you would find in any other DAW, whether you're on Logic or Studio One or Reaper. Maybe you're struggling with trying to improve your mix technique, or maybe you just simply don't have access to multi track files or can't record a full drum set in your studio. I wanted to give you a chance to create your own mixes from full drum drum kit, bass, and guitars recorded in my studio. The song is called American Winter, and it's off my instrumental record, Skadoosh, and it's all available for you totally free right now. All you need to do to get it is text Mix Master Bundle to 33444, and I'll send it directly to your email. Again, that's Mix Master Bundle with no space to 33444, or you can go directly to MixMasterBundle.com, enter your email, and I'll send all the files directly to you. Thanks so much, Rockstars. We'll see you guys in the jam session. Cheers. Rockstars, we're back now for the jam session. My guest today is Kevin Killen. We're going to jump in here. Kevin, are you ready to jam? I hope so. All right, cool, man. Tell us, when you started out in recording, other than having your ears potentially pinned back, what was one of the biggest things that was holding you back? Hmm. Um, my, hmm, hmm. I have to think about that one for a second. Jam session, quick. Think of it quickly. Um, <laughs> you know, because I'm a good listener, I was letting other people question my decision. And so, mm. uh, you know, I was... I. Intuitively, I was sure that I was making the correct decision, but I had a lot of uh, family members and other people just saying, "Are you sure this is what you want to do? You can't, you know, you can't go back to college at a later point." And so it it it, it cast a little seed of doubt. But I knew that as soon as I went in that first day, I, I, it was the correct decision for me, and uh, history has borne that out. Nice. And do you feel like that transition to your actual studio efforts too, where as you were developing your own taste and production style, that you, you know, it took a moment before you could kind of own it. Oh, absolutely. I, I actually still have a cassette of the very first thing I ever did with my friend. And uh, I, you know, the first evening I recorded him, with, it was a drum machine and bass and a little bit of guitar. And I listened back to it the next day with the chief engineer at the studio, this uh, engineer by the name of Philip Egley. And uh, we were with the client. And I was so proud of myself that I'd managed to get the audio from the studio through the console to the tape machine and back again. That I'd forgotten, I'd forgotten all about, you know, in time, in tune, <laughs> with feeling, and so you know, 
there was sound coming out of the speakers, but it was really bad sound. You know? <laughs> well, <laughs> but what's I was, it going to take? <laughs> how, how do we convince you to put that on SoundCloud so we can include no, it in I the can show never, notes? No, 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 no. <laughs> I think it, in in fairness to Finbar, who's who's the artist, I think that <laughs> okay, would be really great. cruel. You know, people would, if people heard it, they'd look they'd look at me and go. How did he get from there to there? <laughs> you know, I always, I was always so proud of my production work that I thought, I was like, oh, I just want to put up, you know, the demo that the artist sent me and then the final result. And every time I would think about that, you know, just to sort of show off what I could do for yeah. a new client. <laughs> and then every time I thought about it, I was like, but I don't think he's going to want me to do that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, very, it's, it's a humbling experience. But I was like a kid. I was like a total, like a, you know... A, an excitable kid. I just like, I made it. I actually did it. You know, yeah. I did this. And and then and they were going, yeah, you certainly, you, cer you certainly did that. And uh, <laughs> don't ever do that again. <laughs> it's not too late to pin your ear, but ears back. <laughs> exactly. Or you maybe should consider going back to college. Kevin. <laughs> um, okay. Now, how about sharing with us some of the best advice you received? Dan and Dan Lanois and Brian Eno suggested that uh, instead of trying to be a master of multiple abilities, Focus on one thing first. So in my case, they said, Kevin, become a really good recording engineer. Do that first before you think about being a producer, before you think about being a mixer. And and in the context of the era where I was coming up, there weren't it wasn't really segregated like that. You were pretty much a recording engineer and you mixed the projects you recorded. So it was very timely advice. I really spent my formative years trying to become a really good recording engineer and mm -hmm. uh, and understanding that discipline. As a consequence of that, because I was mixing my own projects, I started to listen to how to become a good mixer. And so generally speaking, you know, that evolved over time. But it's it certainly wasn't something that you were really good at from day one. It, it evolved. So yeah. that was really timely advice because at the time I was doing a little bit of everything. I was recording and then, you know, with local projects in Dublin, I was trying to produce and, you know, I wasn't really ready to produce. And, uh, you know, I certainly wasn't ready to take other people's projects and mix them on my own without having any knowledge of what the intent of that recording was. I yeah. did better on my own projects, but not on other projects. And that, that took me a number of years to really figure that one out. And, uh, you know, it, you know, I really, if you look at my career, I didn't really start getting asked to mix other projects until the late eighties really. And I'd already been doing this for about nine or 10 years at that point. So that's great. Well, I always notice that as we learn how to do stuff, and we hear things, the more we know, the more obvious things are to us. But before Correct. we learned it and knew it, it wasn't it wasn't obvious. There was no way you could do it until you go through that process of learning. Absolutely. Absolutely. And in fact, you know, I think I, I, if I think of my workflow now, I use I use less processing now than I ever have done uh, when I was a young engineer. I probably used too many microphones when I started out too much EQ, too much compression compared to what I would do now. And it's not because I'm lazy. It's because I understand, you know, mic placement better, gain structure better, you know, the environment in which we're working in better. I, you know, I, all those things have been accumulated over time. And, you know, witnessing what other people do and talking to other engineers who I admire and, and, and eventually arriving at a consensus that I think, oh, yeah, you don't always necessarily need to reach for, you know, this piece of gear or that piece of gear. Um, you, you, you often, you make the best record you can in the environment you find yourself in. And, yeah. you know, you can't, can't be worried about, oh, I don't have my favorite piece of gear. So what? You know, you, you, if you've got a 57 and a great, a great sounding mic pre, you can make a great sounding record. That's great. Okay, so now how about sharing a recording tip, hack, or secret sauce, something that the rock stars could take to their studio today on their next project? 
Hmm. Mic gain, mic gain structure. I always that was something I learned from Glenn Johns. So when we were working on Stevie's record, he showed me that on that Neve console, stepped gain on the mic pre, and he would bring it up. You'd make the mic pre really hot, and then when you heard the first instance of distortion, you would back it off two clicks. So that would give you anywhere between 10 and 12 dB of headroom, and then you would adjust the level on the fader to to the tape machine or to the DAW. And and his viewpoint and his experience that had been born out at that point for almost you know 25 years or 30 years of recording when we worked together um, was centered around the notion that if the microphone was really kind of hot and sensitive, it would pick up all the wonderful nuances of the instrument. And and that's something that I've learned from him that I've employed ever since, just making sure that that gain structure is correct in the beginning. And if it is, chances are you probably won't need to use a lot of EQ and you probably won't need to use a lot of compression. That's great. It is such a, a true thing. There is this concept that things that are louder sound more appealing to us. In the mastering stage, you sort of learn that not to be fooled by that, that if you just simply turned it up, it would also sound louder. But somehow in the mic pre stage, you really do have to get it just loud enough for the mic pre to actually sound the best. Correct. You know? Yeah. yeah. And then the other thing I learned, the other thing I learned a couple of years later, we're working with Burt Bacharach on, on this Elvis Costello record was his ability to be able to come in with a fully formed arrangement on day one of tracking. And then for the rest of the project, he's actually removing parts of the arrangement and stripping it nice. back down. Which is contrary to what the way most of us think about making records. You know, it's like you think about, okay, we just keep adding stuff to it. And he was more about taking stuff away to create the space for which that particular motif or that particular line stood out and made you want to listen in a little bit more and made you want to hear it again and yearn for that thing again. I mean, it was such a wonderful experience. And 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 also with him when we went to mix, he was the first person I worked with where the vocal went up first and then the piano or whatever the main harmonic instrument was that was supporting the vocal. Um, because as he maintained, and, and it is absolutely correct, when you're dealing with a vocal intensive artist, the vocal is actually telling the story. So why mm-hmm. wouldn't you start with that and create the space? So that was back in 96. And so 20 years later, I'm still, that's how I approach mixing now. I always start with the vocal and bring in the main melodic instrument. And then usually the last thing I put in are the drums. And I'm a, you know, I'm a drummer and I love drums, but I, I totally get the space. I used to build my mixes from drums up. Now I do it the other way around. I'm still trying to learn how to do it the other way around. <laughs> Drums are just so much fun as an engineer. Yeah, but, it's, it's true. So speaking of vocals, it reminds me, listening to Black Star, there was a great thing you did where you could just hear David on the microphone getting ready to sing. And it's really, you hear like the kind of shuffling around and the breathing. And was that sort of a, a really intentional move? I don't remember. What, I apologize for not having written down which song it was. Um, yeah, I don't remember. Yeah, I don't remember off the top of my head which one it was. But he, but David went out and tracked with the band. Um, yeah. so, so literally, the band would come in every day. We knew what songs we were trying to, you know, capture that day. They would literally go out and do one pass. He would listen in the control room, and he usually was wonderful. And then he would go out, and and they were literally all in the same room. The Magic Shop was not a very large studio, I mean, wonderful sounding room, but not a very large recording space. So they were all live in the room. David was on a, a SM7, and maybe about ten feet from the drums. Wow. And so, you know, part of that is just that whole ambience that, you know, the spill between the instruments. And, you know, David elevated the bands playing and the players elevated David's performance and they really fed off of each other. So, you know, we were in record, you know, before they before they picked up their instruments. So uh, there's probably just something about that particular moment that appealed to everybody. We just left it in. Yeah. Well, and that's what's cool about it. I mean, it's one of those moves where first assumption is, oh, I better clean up the vocal track before the singing actually starts. But, right. you know, you you chose the opposite, which is not only am I going to leave it in, but I'm going to make it this featured intro to the song. 
At least that's the way it struck me. <laughs> well, that, that's really more kudos to uh, to Tony Visconti and, and uh, Tom Elmhurst because they ultimately mixed the record. I, I did all the tracking and, and, oh, great, and David great. David and uh, and Tony Reed did some vocals towards the end of the process. But oh, that's uh, great. Yeah. But 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 pretty much the record sounds you know it, the finished record sounds very much like the tracked record, maybe with a little more detail and a little more ambience and stuff. You know, and they did a great job. That's cool. Uh, another aside on the day that David died, my daughter had a day off from school because we were having ice snow days. We actually had like a week off. And so we sat down and built Legos all day on the dining room floor. And I put on Blackstar and I played it. We listened to it from top to bottom so that I could introduce my daughter to David Bowie. And um, <laughs> so we sat and listened through the entire record. And so she, it was really an experience. Yeah. The, the day he passed, um, I was in the studio with Henry Hay, who's a wonderful keyboard player and producer and arranger. And we were recording the cast vocals for the Lazarus record that David had uh, wow. had put together. And so um, Henry and I knew that David was really sick. And Michael C. Hall was the only person of the cast who knew he was sick. But uh, yeah, that was a very emotional day. We decided we were going to honor that commitment and we we're going to go in and record that day. And um, we all felt like that he was in the room with us, whether we were, you know, whether it was a very intense day one way or the other we we worked for 12 hours on that cast record and uh we felt like he was there yeah i mean his records have been incredibly meaningful to me from the moment of discovery of music to the present day you know yeah, i think for most people yeah um, self-included okay. yeah all right, so let's a couple more questions here. Uh, share with us a hardware tool, something it doesn't necessarily have to be like an outboard compressor or something like that, but anything physical that you have on sessions that you're sort of always glad you've got it. I have a number of pieces, but I really love my uh, Hardy uh, M1 mic pre's, mm. and I have this. Uh, box that Chad Blake turned me on to years and years ago called a sound retrieval system. It's a it's made from the Hughes Corporation and it's basically a voice cockpit processor and uh, and you can do some really weird and wacky things with it and you just kind of run some audio through it and it kind of totally messes with the phase. So you can make any signal going through that box feel like it's dancing way outside the speakers. Wow. Uh, not great if you're cutting vinyl, but wonderful if you're just streaming, you know. So that that's, that's often a little thing that I use. Okay, cool, um, cool. Yeah, yeah. All right, now how about a software tool, something that um, maybe is a favorite or just something really cool that you've recently discovered that you want to share with people? Well, I'm a big fan of the uh, of both the Sonox suite, the Sony Oxford suite, and the UAD uh, software package because I feel like both of those, they're really musical, they're very intuitive. The Sony stuff, I, I actually used that console back in 2003 when Peter asked me to do a 5.1 mix of So, and I was able to make that console sound like an SSL 4000 E-series with relative ease, and I love wow. the way its workflow was. And then with the UAD stuff, I think they've done an amazingly great job in capturing, you know, the original hardware versions of the software. And uh, they take the time, they do it right. And, you know, as do a lot of the companies. But, you know, for me, they're often my defaults when I'm when I'm setting up sessions. That's great. All right. Well, so now how about the, oh, yeah, I was going to say about the Sonics stuff. I have been hard pressed to find a replacement for Inflator and the Sonics Limiter, which both are a couple of my favorites for for mm -hmm. uh, just sort of doing some final mastering touches. Right. Uh, how about a resource for the business side? I mean, there are, there are many listeners who don't necessarily want to just do this for a hobby. What advice do you have for them or, or an online resource or just, you know, anything to just get the business right? 
Um, God, this is this is this is an area where I'm really, you know, I'm really not as knowledgeable as I should be, and that sounds somewhat kind of counterintuitive. Um, I know what works for me. I think having great representation is really important if you're a young engineer. Mm-hmm. If you can find somebody and find somebody that you trust um, who will represent you in the way in which you want to be represented. So I think that's you know the best piece of advice I can give is find somebody who will represent you in the best way that you want to pursue your career. And um, Would you like to give a shout out to anybody as far as um, great representation goes? Well, I, I could say my own manager, Joe D'Ambrosia, who's a wonderful manager, and uh, you know, I would definitely give a shout out to him. Okay, cool. Absolutely. Cool, yeah. great. Now, how about an organizational online resource, something that you use to kind of keep, something digital that keeps your world together? <laughs> I totally, oh, well, of course, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Hightail, and we transfer. I use that all the time mm-hmm. to help navigate file transfers and stuff like that. And Google Docs, I think, is also a wonderful uh, a wonderful app. So I, a lot of times I'll use those three apps to to kind of make my life a lot easier, especially uh, when I am, you know, working via satellite. So this is, you know, in this day and age, a lot of times we have sessions that are unintended. Mm-hmm. So it's really great to be able to have those things at your fingertips to be able to have uh, the client be as close by as possible. Very cool. All right. So last couple of questions here and we're done. They're both hypothetical. This one is, uh, imagine you were sort of, you know, dropped in a new city and, and you were going to start all over and you needed to have a, a simple setup to record with. You wanted to find musicians to record and um, you needed to make a decision about making ends meet. Or you were giving advice, say, to your son who's going to do the same thing or something like that. How would you answer those three questions? Simple setup, find people to record. Uh, what's a good way to make ends meet to start out doing this? A simple setup would just be a little laptop, uh, you know, either an Apollo interface or a little uh, you know, HD native interface. A- anything that's, you know... Decent sounding, a couple of decent sounding microphones, maybe three or four decent sounding microphones, you know, a couple of utility microphones, maybe some 57s, but maybe a couple of great sounding microphones that you can put your hands on. Um, Anything from SM7s to maybe a couple of Royer ribbons or something like that. And keep it simple and maybe apply a little bit of discipline where you say, I'm going to go and only record 24 tracks so that you keep it simple and and keep it elegant so you don't get get out of whack. Um, in terms of where you would find stuff, I would I would obviously look um, look on the local websites, see listen to the local radio stations, see where a lot of the music is coming out of, talk to, find a couple of musicians, see where people are playing, and then go and show up and see who's playing at what venue, and and try and establish some connection there. And in terms of doing whatever I would need to do to make money and to survive, that's really kind of open to anybody at that point. I mean. Mm-hmm. You know, when I, before I worked in the studio, I did numerous jobs from when I was 12 years of age, from working in a shoe store to working on the construction site to, you know, working in canning factories during the summer months to working in the postal service. Uh, I even worked as a bus conductor in Dublin one summer making money. I mean, I think really at the end of the day, you do anything to make money to survive if, if you want to basically pursue your craft of being a musician or being a recordist or being a producer. So whatever builds you do have, you need to be able to meet those demands and also give you the time and flexibility to go and capture recordings and delve into that world. So once you started in a studio, was that kind of it for other jobs? Was it music from then on out? Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I think I've I've only ever worked in the studio since, uh, since I was 19 and, uh, you know, it was a great experience, but 
certainly back in those days, sessions were typically 12 to 14 hours long. That was the typical lockout date for each session. So you add in a few extra hours, an hour before for setup, and then an hour afterwards for cleanup. You're pulling 16-hour days. It doesn't wow. give a lot of time. <laughs> and, I, and so, as a consequence, I, you know, as I said, I was really into football. You know what what you call soccer. Uh-huh. And um, so, because I was so active, and and because the studio was so sedentary, I, I became a runner. And uh, so I run four or five times a week. I've you know certainly run in many races, road races here in the city and in other cities. And I've done a few marathons. And you know, I often think that. Uh, marathoning is a lot, a lot like making records. Um, there's yeah. that initial excitement as you're on the starting line, and which is akin to first day of tracking. And then there's the realization and the drudgery of, you know, when you get to about mile 18, you realize, oh my God, I still have another <laughs> eight or 10 miles to go. And that's kind of like the overdub phase. And then there's the elation of crossing the line where you feel like, I will never do this again. And two <laughs> steps later, you're thinking, I'm going to do it again. And that's akin to just being pummeled through mixing and mastering and, you know, like, oh my God, I'll never make another record. And and so it has given me the fortitude to uh, always keep the big picture in my mind. And also, you know, you know, you, you're so, you're capable of doing so much more if you can just push a little bit harder. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so, yeah. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, no, I, I have also run a couple of marathons and, and a few days afterwards you wake up and you're like, man, I'm really in good shape today. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but that day after you're in pain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But it's a bit like making a record when you, you know, you feel like I, you know, you just pulled three weeks or four weeks of like nonstop work. You haven't seen your family, you haven't seen your friends. You've only been working. You're tired. You're grumpy, and you think, God, why am I doing this? And then you know, a couple of days later, you think, Man, that was a great experience. Let's do it again. Yeah, yeah. How does it feel to win a Grammy? Does it? Do you come back feeling like, yes, sign me up for the next record? I have to say, it was a very surreal experience. I. It, you know, ironically enough, I was I was nominated in that category a number of times, and I, I've attended the sessions, and I and I've never won, and that's fine. I mean, I think it's such an arbitrary thing, but it was a really nice honor. I have to say, it was it's a very humbling experience. And uh, at the you know, we walked into the theater, Elaine Chow, I believe was 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 the was the host, and and she kind of handed out this piece of advice, and she said, "Look, if you're a nominee, come sit down the front, because if you are the winner." you have 45 seconds from when your name is announced <laughs> to get up on stage, uh, say something meaningful and get off. And and she said, and by the way, it kind of looks really dumb if you're going to read from a piece of paper or your iPhone or your iPad. So you're in front of all your colleagues and your peers. Speak from the heart. They, yeah. they know exactly what you mean. And so I didn't I did not have anything prepared because I. I'm not superstitious, but I just thought that was very presumptuous of me to do that. Yeah. And I thought, you know, the other nominees in that category were wonderful. And any of those records were equally deserving, as I'm sure lots of other records were equally deserving. So I, I sat there with my my son Shane and Joe D and Brogia, and I was kind of in on the fifth row, or sorry, I was in there on the fifth chair. So when they called out my name, I kind of blanked for a second and Joe and my son Shane were like, dad, my son was going, dad, get up there. You know, so I kind of <laughs> made my way up there and I'm thinking, what do I say? And and uh, <laughs> Joe Laporta had come up from the other side. He was the mastering engineer and I didn't see him. So I'm kind of talking and I turn around just, you know, peripherally. And I I thought it was Tom Elmhurst, you know, and, and I said, oh, and Tom, he did a great job mixing. And of course it was Joe. And I'm like, you know, you don't really know what you're going to say. Yeah. So it's a very surreal experience. And, you know, I'm, it's not that like I'm a Luddite. I, I do enjoy technology and I've embraced technology right through through my career. But I don't do the social media stuff because I feel like 
it's just one more thing to manage. And I feel like I'd rather manage the things that I'm passionate about, which is, you know, making the records I make and, you know, indulging in the other passions I have, you know, with friends and, and my activities and my family. And so so I went off stage and they take you backstage and and you go on this little odyssey. So people don't really know what happens backstage. So you come off stage, they take the, the Grammy away from you because they need them to hand out to other people. Um, and then you sign a waiver and then they do an interview and then they take some photographs with another statue. And then they ask you if you want to go to the media center. And so the media center is actually in the Staples Center. So you go through all these tunnels. Anyway, long story short, you basically come back out of the Staples Center and Joe and I came out and we realized... Well, I realized I'd left my ticket and my phone on my seat. So, you know, how am I getting back in to you know, the Nokia theater? And so I had in my pocket, I had the envelope, you know, which said, you know, and the winner is. So we went up to the security guard and I said, I know it's going to sound really weird. And, you know, we're dressed up, you know, in suits and stuff. Yeah. And I showed, showed to the security guard. He goes, oh, OK, I'll let you back in. So I went back in and I sat down and I had missed my son had texted me in in the interim and said he just wrote down two, two for two. And I didn't really know what he meant. So in the interim, Johnny Gandelsman had gone up and accepted for Silk Road. So I'd missed his whole thing. I didn't even know he was in the room, even oh, no. though I knew he was attending. So I came back down. I sat down on, on my seat. I picked up my phone. And literally, it didn't stop vibrating for about 15 minutes. You know, people were texting. My son had posted something up on Facebook. So I was getting all these Facebook notifications and, you know, iMessages. And it, it's kind of, it is overwhelming. It's like, yeah. wow, I, I, you know, really people are paying that much attention. And and so you literally have your 15 minutes of fame and, it's, and, it, and you kind of bask in that low and it's a lovely feeling. But then the next day you're right back at work and and uh, and you're back to doing what you what you do and what you what you love doing and and uh, you know it's it's a great experience. I hope that all all the engineers out there get to experience it at some point. But at the end of the day, I, I, it's not the reason why we do you know why we engage in making records. It's you know the the beauty and the craft of making records and transporting people and going above and beyond the call of duty to make an artist you know beam with joy or cry with joy when they hear your finished record that you've worked on for them on their behalf. I mean, that's that's really the joy in making records. And it's a wonderful honor and I'll treasure it for the rest of my life. And yeah, I feel very humbled by it. What a wonderful story. Well, Kevin, last question. This one is hypothetical sure. too. We're taking the way back time machine, studio time machine. You're going to go back <laughs> and you're going to find young Kevin with his ears sticking out and and go tap yourself on the shoulder and you turn around and say, older Kevin, what are you doing here? And you say, well, I've come back to give you this one bit of advice. Here's the single most important thing you need to know to be a rock star of the studio yourself one day. What would you tell yourself? Keep listening. Keep, Keep listening. listening. <laughs> <laughs> Keep listening. Yeah, I, you know, I probably would say, I, I mean, one of my regrets, and it's still something that I aspire towards, is m not being good enough to read music and, and maybe... I, as I said in the, at the outset, I was, you know, playing drums, and I realized when I went into the studio that I didn't necessarily have the kind of ability to become a session player, and that my skill set was more leaning towards that of an engineer. But I still miss the idea of perhaps being a musician myself. But I don't confuse that with what I do uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. But part of me would think it might have helped me at certain points if if I had developed those part of my skills as well. But then again, you know, both Brian and Danny had said to me, you know, concentrate on one thing. And that was part of the juxtaposition that I found myself in as a young, young, you know, uh, adult trying to navigate the studio world. So, yeah, I, I think keep, 
keep listening. Yeah, that's, keep listening. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for being with us on Recording Studio Rockstars, Kevin. You're right. What a welcome, pleasure Ed. it is. What a pleasure to hear from you, you know. Thank you. It was a really, really, really fun experience. I hope people enjoy it. Um, tell our listeners know how they can follow you, find out more about you. Um, I guess they won't be looking for you on social media, but maybe there's a website they should be looking at. Yeah, yeah, Joe D'Ambrosia Management. Um, if they go to that website, you know, there I have my own little link on that page. I did have a Kevin Killen website, but uh, it's down right now and I'm trying to get it back up. But uh, to Joe D'Ambrosia Management Inc., they will find my link and my contact information there. All right, wonderful. Well, thank you again so much for joining us. Um, I look forward to meeting you in person some point and uh, see you around the studio. You're very welcome. Great to chat. All right, cheers, cheers Kevin. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Recording Studio Rockstars. If you enjoyed the show and want to help make it better, please leave a rating and review on iTunes to help reach more people. You can click directly over to iTunes or go to recordingstudiorockstars.com slash review for an easy explanation. And if you want more free content, all you have to do is text RS Rockstars to 33444. Again, that's RS Rockstars to 33444, and I'll keep you in the loop with articles, videos, and podcast updates. And I'll let you know about any upcoming giveaway offers, all totally free. Thanks for listening. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is Recording Studio Rockstars. Now, go make great music. Music.